Running Light Ministry podcast is brought to you by listeners like you. You can support these podcasts by making a gift to the ministries at runninglight.org. Okay, that was much better. This is Bo. I'm Peter. And we're with Running Light Ministry. Sorry about that. We're trying to get all of our ducks in a row. It seems like every time we get online and do it live, the um, feed is always a little bit jacked, um, (laughs) meaning one's always really loud and the other one's real soft. So anyway, welcome to the Better Pleasure podcast. Peter and I usually take some time uh, in the month to talk about issues regarding the Bible and sex and sexuality and sensuality and things of that nature. And on this podcast, which is going to be actually, I think, podcast number 88. Nice. I think that's where we're at. Um, we wanted to talk about what makes sex great. Yeah. And uh, this is kind of interesting because it is uh, filled with a worldview. Yeah. You know, and and uh, what uh, what how you answer this question really dictates a lot of what you think about the world. Yeah. You know, right? Yeah. Um, you know, what have you when you were growing up? What did you hear about great sex, Peter? Uh, I didn't hear anything about great sex. What? Your parents <laughs> didn't say, man, dude, sex is awesome if you do this. Yeah. <laughs> I heard a lot about bad sex. Really? Um, I don't really think I heard anything about good sex. Isn't that weird? Yeah. <laughs> Why? It's like, mo- it, isn't that a trip? It's like, it's kind of odd. That's tr- such a true statement where, th- where a lot of us, when we do think about sex and growing up, we do think of a lot of negativity. <laughs> you know, we don't think of a lot of positives. Yeah, we it's think just of don't a- do this, don't do this, don't do this. But there's never a, but you should do this or this feels good or this is better or yeah i didn't i didn't really hear any of that when i was growing up not right. even from uh cuz i was in secular school i was in public school yeah and not even there uh for my friends yeah yeah <laughs> for my friends we talked a lot about you know what we thought of good sex but um no not from any adult or authority figure in my life yeah th- which is kind of interesting right yeah you know, because if none of your authority figures are talking about sex in a positive way, and they're only talking about it in a negative way, then probably the value of those negative statements are pretty increased in your psyche growing up, right? Yeah, yeah. You know, and for a lot of Christians, um, you know, I, I feel comfortable saying this because um, I've counseled quite a few, and so have you. But I do believe for a lot of Christians that kind of sets people up to have bad sex life in in their marriages uh because if all you know is what not to do that doesn't mean that you're prepared to do what is good right so um all we really hear as christians is just wait till marriage you know wait till marriage wait till marriage wait till marriage and there's usually like a promise uh i heard a lot of promises of what will happen when you wait till marriage uh, it was basically just like hey if you wait till marriage it's going to be awesome it's going to be amazing it's going to be the best you know uh but <laughs> again it, it just it's just this assumption that if you just wait till marriage magically your sex life is going to be great you know and there mm. there is no learning curve there's no learning process and so i think a lot of christians are really let down um when they finally do have intimacy mm, yeah. and uh they don't know really how to grow it they don't know how to develop it and they certainly don't ha- know how to talk about it so um yeah mm. Yeah, there are some books that are out there that are or in the Christian world. I was just picking up this one, um, Forever and Always, The Art of Intimacy. That's one. And then the other one is by, I forget the doctor, but it's uh, intended for pleasure. It's kind of a classic, older uh, book 
Um, I read that one. It's good. Yeah, it was. It's pretty awesome. Even it looks though it's like it's from the '70s. Yeah, <laughs> it's got all the retro font and stuff. It's pretty cool. Yeah, and uh, so when we talk about great sex, uh, you know, what biblical kind of um, uh, passages, you know, do you think we could look at? Does the Bible teach anything about great sex? Uh, I mean, the book that comes right to my mind is Song of Solomon. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that's probably the best place to go. Um, but there are many others because, you know, what I hope people get from our podcast is that it's um, the the nature of sexuality, the nature of sensuality is kind of woven into almost every part of Scripture. Uh, because throughout Scripture, what you have is you have this uh, from Genesis all the way to Revelation. You know, in Genesis, you have man being brought to woman and in that rapturous love affair that man and woman have towards one another there is a beautiful picture of god's love towards mankind and then in the garden that love is broken there is a separation and throughout the old testament god is trying to come back into a marital covenant with mankind and he tries to do it through the people of israel but the people of Israel fail to keep their end of the bargain. Mm -hmm. Then he brings his son, and then the son enters into a marital covenant with mankind to all who would be faithful to him and put their faith in him. And that's why we're called the bride of Christ throughout the New Testament and in the book of Revelation. How does the book of Revelation end? The very last two chapters of the Bible, it's a wedding ceremony. It's God re-entering into a wedding covenant with mankind through the blood of his son. So, um, I, I believe that pretty much when you look at the Bible as a whole, there's not really many places you can go that don't talk about this idea or the context of intimacy, uh, what intimacy is all about. Because intimacy is not something so simple as just like um, you, you can't reduce it down to something of just like sex positions, uh, which some people do. And you can also reduce it down and just say, well, it's, it's all just about what happens outside of the bed. It's not. It's both. You know, like having great intimacy with your spouse is outside of the bed as well as inside of the bed. There needs to be a understanding of intimacy in general uh, with your with your loved one, um, an understanding of your sensuality, an understanding of your sexuality, your pleasure, things like that. Yeah, and and this this kind of brings uh, up a really interesting point. Is it, you know it, when before I, I kind of understood this idea of the spirit or the soul. You really just have the the idea that you're biological, that you're just you're just um, you know the body, just the flesh, right? And so, sex is really a, a fleshly thing. It's just something that satisfies the fleshly urge, if you will. And so, from that perspective, the idea of great sex really comes down to what brings me the greatest physical pleasure, hmm. and. And that really is it. And hence, you have ideas of, well, you know, hey, this brings me amazing pleasure. Or, hey, this brings me amazing pleasure. Or, hey, maybe there's something else that will bring you even greater pleasure. And, and you got to get out there and, and go for it and give it a try. Um, and you can't really say that that's wrong because that, that saying that's wrong kind of infiltrates into my sexual autonomy. Mm. And... And really, you can't, you shouldn't, it's immoral for you to come against my sexual autonomy in seeking pleasure 
on my own terms, in my own way, as long as it doesn't hurt, quote, hurt anybody else. Uh, meaning and what we mean by that or what people mean by that in sex education, especially when they're teaching in schools, is that as long as there's a consensual idea, right, where both parties or all parties, depending on what you're, who you're having sex with, um, are all consenting to the sex. So, um, you know, you know, that's the idea there. And the biblical idea is that you actually have a soul. There is actually an immaterial part of your being. And that, that non-material part of your being is also communicative as well. Um, it is communicative with God. Um, and it is also, it has an expression in our physicality it, that, that spirit within us moves within our physical bodies. And so the biblical idea of great sex would be not just, uh, in a sense, mono. It wouldn't just be flesh, but it would also have these other aspects to it, like a soul, spirit, that all these things are intertwined in the intimacy that is going on. Um, and, and that's a different worldview. That's a different idea. So when a Christian, I think, is saying, hey, we can have better sex, greater sex, and we can have great sex, uh, we're looking at it as a real holistic kind of approach where we strongly believe that sex is uh, not only a way of knowing another person, but it's a way of understanding God and and in a non-material way um, there's something non-material that is a part of that equation that's hard for us to pinpoint obviously it's hard for us to but yet we we look to the scriptures and we believe these things by faith um, and so so there's other aspects to it, I guess, than when I was just uh, kind of the the uh, secular kind of, you know, Darwinian guy, you know, growing up where you're just like, oh, well, we're just animals. We're just, you know, bonobos. And in reading Wednesday Martin's book, you know, she's on the section where she talks about bonobos and how, hey, our DNA is just like bonobos. And, you know, we're just like bonobo monkeys. And, and you know, and look at how they, they're really, they're, they have, their females dominate the men and in that culture. And, you know, there's female um, uh, sexual autonomy and, and they can, they experience all kinds of sexual behaviors. And, 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 and that's a viewpoint of just understanding us as biology is just as physiology is just the flesh and, and not understanding the spiritual um, dimension of sex. Because what you're talking about um, when you're looking at the Bible as a whole, is you're talking about all like this whole ramification of God um, and His relationship with His people and the anticipation of them coming together, um, which is described biblically as a husband and a wife coming together, mm. and and that's something we can't see. It's something we trust by faith, um, just as we we don't see the soul, 
um, but yet we trust it too. So th- in a sense, you can make, the, I guess, the point that Christian sex has to be greater because there's more involved than just the physical. Yeah. Yeah. No, that's exactly correct. And, you know, I, I love the way you put that because <coughs> in my experience, very rarely do people marry the two, um, soul and body in that way, that dichotomy of, of man that we see, you know, that when God created man, he made, he breathed into us a spirit and we became a living being, you know, like there's this idea that the soul and the body are one, that we are, they're inseparable. You know, we are both physical and non-physical at the same time. And, uh, you know, even our hope of the resurrection as Christians is that once again, not that we will be, this is second Corinthians five, not that we will be naked, meaning not that we will be just spirit, but that we will be more clothed, meaning that the physical will just be better, right? So um, throughout the Bible, there's this idea of a marriage of the two. And I think that what's kind of happened in our culture today is that there's a separation of the two, where you have the secular people who are just focusing on the material, and then you have the Christians who are just focusing on the spiritual. And it's only really when you bring those two together that you get the full picture. And this is what I mean. So Bo already mentioned what the secular people are doing, that they're just saying like, well, okay, sex is just a physical act, right? So uh, if we can maximize that physical act, that's the best sex you can have. So um, some secular people think that the best sex that you can have is um, random, meaning that exploring your sexuality with as many different partners as you can. Um, Other secular people think that the best sex that you can have is committed sex, right? So having sex with one partner. So yeah, there are atheists who believe that being in a family, having a committed relationship is good. It is the way to, co- to have the best type of sex. Um, but that's all they're focused on. And then on the other side, you have the Christians who only take the spiritual side of it. And so we're thinking, um, once again, we're thinking about the ramifications of God and man. So we put up the laws and we say like, okay, we shouldn't do this, we shouldn't do this, we shouldn't do this. And then we think about the, um, the spiritual aspect of it, of like, okay, husbands love your wives as Christ loved the church. So I'm supposed to be honoring God in the way that I treat my spouse. And I think a lot of Christians get that, but they miss out on the physical. I mean, they miss out on this idea that like, no, like sex is intended to be pleasurable and it's designed by God to be something that honors him and, and glorifies him. And so you should think about the physical every now and then, and you should be able to communicate that way to your spouse. A lot of Christians are very uncomfortable talking about the physical aspect of sex, mm. right? They're, they're, I, I've seen a growing amount of Christians being able to express the spiritual side of sex, um, which is encouraging. Uh, when I was a kid, I don't think I heard anyone really talk about it at all. Right? <laughs> I just heard the negatives. But now I hear a lot more Christians talking about the spiritual side of it, talking about how good sex can be and how it does honor God. Yeah, I hear that a lot more. But I don't hear a lot of Christians going over and saying, like, no, it is also a physical act. And therefore, we need to look at it that way. And we need to think about it that way. Right? And when you look through the Bible and you look at the instances where sexuality is talked about explicitly, it's explicitly talked about like a, sexual, like a physical act. A uh, good example is Proverbs 5, uh, where Solomon's talking about a husband. He says, husbands, uh, be enraptured by the love of your wife, right? Uh, as a loving doe and a graceful deer, be satisfied on her breasts, right? So that's a very, very vivid physical di- dimension of sex. Uh, throughout the Song of Solomon, you have very, very physical depictions of sex. You have the man looking at the woman and describing in great detail her body and how it's arousing him. You have the woman doing the same thing, talking about the man and being aroused by his 
his physical appearance, his stature. And they also have the spiritual dimension of love and care for one another woven into it. So I, I don't think that you can, if you just separate the two, I don't think you ever will have the intended great sex that God wants for us. Hmm, yeah, I was l- looking at this, uh, the poetry in the Song of Solomon, how beautiful y- your sandaled feet, O prince daughter, your graceful legs are like jewels, the work of a craftsman's hands. Your navel is a rounded goblet that never lacks blended wine. Your waist is a mound of wheat circles with lilies. Your breasts are like two fawns, twins of a gazelle. Your neck is like an ivory tower. Your eyes are like the pools of Heshbon by the gate of Bath-Rabim. Your nose is like the tower of Lebanon looking toward Damascus. Your head crowns you like Mount Carmel. Your hair is like royal tapestry. The king is held captive by its tresses. How beautiful you are. How pleasing. O love with your delights. Kind of a cool passage, right, that kind of discusses the whole range. It's kind of a neat passage in the Song of Solomon because it goes from the feet all the way up, <laughs> you know? And, and so the Bible stresses great sex is, is in, in a sense, it's, it's cognitive of everything right. of, of the beloved. And, you know, the Bible stresses that great sex is, is I would say, safe, and it is is also um, private, hmm. um, in the sense that it's not something to be. Other people are to you're not to invite other people in. It's something that I guess that's what makes can make sex safe, right? You know, um, and the reason why is because if it's open to everybody, then then what are people gonna do? You know, is it, does it really breed safety, hmm. you know, if sex is open to everybody? Right. And the answer is probably not, right? If you, I mean, it's not probably not. It's of course not. Meaning if you have sex and it's open to everybody, so if everybody just had sex out in the lawn, what, what's going to happen is people will go over there and want to join sex. People will masturbate. You know, I n- hate to be so crude, but... Not everybody will, but people will. Mm. And, and you, know, you know, people will not be able to harness their fleshly appetite. And that, that, makes, safe, uh, that makes sex very unsafe. Right. Um, you know, and, you know, th- I think this is th- kind of the problem with pornography is that... It, it, you know, pornography, when it's filmed, when someone's filming themselves, um, you know, they might not know they're filming themselves, um, and that's one thing. But when someone is filming themselves, you know, and, and then it's going out to everybody else, if, if it wasn't for that division of camera, studio, whatever, and the other person, it wouldn't be safe at all, hmm. Right? What makes cam work safe when a college student is doing a cam, a nude cam shot, what makes that safe for that person is that there's a division um, between the computer and the person in um, Russia that's watching them or the person who's next door that's watching them. Hmm. Um, 
So we all know inside our hearts that the only way that even is even like that there that safety matters in sex. Even when people say, "Well, no, like I think we should be we should be able to be this or be that or have these different sexual experiences." The only way that works is if you go to a club that that it is known that that's th- that we're going to have these sexual varieties in this club and and it and that we have gone through a testing to make sure that we're all not filled with a disease right and and and, and but even that there's a division there's a divider right mm-hmm. the divider is is the club and those outside the club so when they say, well, no, see, it works. It can work. See, check us out. Look at us. Look what, what we do. It, like, we don't need safety. Look at us. We got our club. Well, no, you, that, that club is the dividing. It is the safety from the other thing. Right. So it's like safety does matter. Um, you know, and it, and it makes it, there's something, there's something about being, feeling safe that makes us, able to do what Song of Solomon talks about in chapter 7, right? Right, right. And, you know, I I think that, and this is something that me and Bo say often, um, but unfortunately the church tends to think in black and white, um, like good and bad, and that's all we tend to think like. And so when we think about sex, I have heard some Christians erroneously say, that if you're not having sex to the glory of God, if you're not waiting till marriage and stuff like that, your sex is going to suck. And um, <laughs> obviously it's not true. Um, if that was true, then everyone who's having sex in the world would have sucky sex lives, and it doesn't really seem like that's the truth. Um, our contention, me and Bo, what we're saying is that there's good sex, there's better sex, then there's the best sex. And there's also bad sex, and there's also worse sex, right? And so what Bo is saying is that like, if you only had passionate, intimate sex that did not include safety, commitment, and exclusivity, which I'll talk about in a second. But if you only had the passions and the pleasures of sex and you just, and you selected that one portion of sex and, you, and intimacy and you said, I just want this, you could have pretty good sex, right? You could have pretty good sex. But what we're saying is that if you incorporate into sex, commitment, exclusivity, safety, protection, stuff like that, sex becomes better, right? And if you incorporate all of it, it becomes the best, right? And the, where we get this as Christians is what we believe is that the ultimate joy of mankind is in glorifying God, meaning that we're made in his image. And so the more that we reflect his nature, the more happy we are, the more joyous we are because that's how we were designed, right? So when you look at God's nature, it's like what, what kind of nature does God have when it comes to his intimacy, and you look at God's intimacy, that's why I'm saying you've got to go through the entire Bible. When you look at the intimacy that God has with his people, first of all, it is exclusive, meaning that God doesn't become intimate with everybody, right? God is not becoming intimate with the Hindu, and he's not putting his spirit in the Muslim and the Jew, and the, right? He's not doing that. God is exclusive. He has one people. He has one bride. That's it, right? No one else is going to become intimate with God the way that we are. Right? So what we see is that it's the exclusivity of God's love that actually elevates the pleasure and the enjoyment of it. Where if it really was for everybody, 
then it de- it detracts, first of all, from his commitment towards us. Because if you're committed to everybody, it's the same as saying you're committed to nobody, right? If I have commitment towards everybody, that means I don't really have commitment towards anybody. Yeah, and that's why at a wedding, no one argues with the groom because he's the one who's going to have intimacy with the bride. Right. Meaning they don't say to the groom, like, man, dude, it's so wrong that it's just you that's going to have intimacy with her. <laughs> you know, if you really loved, all of us would have intimacy with her, <laughs> you know, and she would have intimacy with everybody. Right. You know, so some people would complain at God like that and say, well, God, God's, you know, why does he have to have one? Why does, why does he have to have one bride? Why can't he love everybody? Yeah. Well, why can't the groom love everybody? Yeah. it detracts from the commitment it detracts from what what loving the beloved is right 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 there's a repeated phrase in the song of solomon which is really cool he says that you are like a lily among thorns and it once again pulls out that idea of exclusivity that the way he's looking at her is not the same way he looks at anybody else Right. Meaning if I looked at my wife and I'm like, honey, you're beautiful. You're amazing. I love you so much. And then I looked at the girl right next to her and I said, man, you're beautiful. You're great. There's no one who looks like you, you know? And I said that to every girl I ran into, my words become meaningless. The only reason why they have meaning or gravity or weight is because I'm only saying these words to her. And in the same way with our intimacy, our intimacy is only special if it is something that only we enjoy together. If it is something like Bo said that I share with other people by videotaping it and showing it to everyone else, once again, it's no longer a private act between me and my wife, so it loses its specialness and its exclusivity. And secondly, it becomes something where I've actually put my wife a little bit in danger because I don't know who's watching it, right? <laughs> you know, there could be someone who, who would take that and, uh, you know, do something harmful towards my wife or, or wish something harmful towards us through watching us in our intimate moments, right? So it's detracting from safety, it's detracting from exclusivity, it's detracting from commitment. And then if it, once again, if I go and I share my intimacy with everybody else, meaning that I'm not just having sex with my wife, but I'm having sex with a plethora of people, um, it's no longer a special act between me and her. It's something that everybody can get in on, right? So mm-hmm. there's no meaning in my commitment, there's no meaning in my love, there's no specialness. Or the Bible uses this word, holiness, um, in the act, right? When the Bible uses the word holiness, all it means is it's set apart. It's different. It's unique. Yeah, when it says in the book of Hebrews, let the marriage bed be undefiled, right? Right. The idea of being holy, right. right? It's being set apart. Right, right, that it's special. Yeah. So when you incorporate, so what we're saying is that, man, like if you have amazing, you know, and you are talking to your spouse, and this is important, you know, we don't want to attract from it. If I am talking to my spouse about, the things that feel good to me in the, in the bed. And she's communicating those things to me. And we are thinking about each other's physical needs and what is pleasurable and sensual to one another. That's important. But what becomes, what amplifies it, it makes it even better, is when all that conversation is held under the umbrella of exclusivity and safety, right? That becomes even greater, right? It becomes even more special. Yeah, and, and you think of, you know, you know the the implication of prayer in that too is so vital. Is when you pray concerning y- your sex life, there's something there's something bonding in that too mm. with your spouse. That you know that you know when you're saying, hey, we're, we we talked about this, and we're talking about these sensitive issues, but now we're going to pray 
and ask God to help us to, to love and to have forgiveness and to have mercy and to have a giving heart like Christ. And we look at Jesus as an example. There, you know, there's an amazing joy in Jesus. There's an amazing pleasure in Christ. And I know that's hard for some people to understand and they can't understand without the Holy Spirit. Um, but, but for me, you know, coming to Christ was an amazingly joyful act. It, it wasn't a bummer at all. It was coming to a person um, who is the most joyful of all. Mm. And, and, and there's something, when you, when you bring in the most, when you're talking to the most joyful person ever, um, and, and one who it says, who is anointed with the oil of gladness, and that we are to delight in, um, it's amazing that all these all these intimate terms are associated with Christ. So when you're when you're praying to an intimate being like that, and it's a person, there's personhood, then then that also compounds the the joy that we can experience in the sexual um, act itself as well. Um, it's just like if you if you talk to someone who, if say a husband and a wife got together and they talked to someone who saw sex negatively, then they probably would have come together and they would have that hanging over them, this kind of negative idea of sex. Because the person, the authority that they talk to about sex is is negative. Right. And so if you talk to, just like when your parents talk about sex negatively all the time growing up, you have an authority figure that's always using negative terms. So when you do come together at sec in sex, even though it, it might feel good, there's always maybe a negative connotation with it. Right. And so that shouldn't be as Christians. As Christians, we're coming to the most joyful, positive being ever, which is God. Yeah. And so the authority that we the authority that we have is a positive authority that contributes to good sex, good intimacy. Um, in bed. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And, you know, the Bible constantly says that love is better than lust, uh, meaning that there is a lot of pleasure in lust, meaning there is a lot of pleasure in just seeking my own um, in sex or anything, right? So if I go into the to bed with my wife and I'm just like, man, I just kind of want to get what I want out of this situation, out of this circumstance. If both of us go into the bed that way, we might leave pretty satisfied, right? We both might get what we want. If, as long as we're just using each other's bodies for what we want. Um, and that's true, and a lot of people operate that way. But what the Bible's saying is that it's better to give than to receive, meaning it's better to love and to care about someone else's needs above your own. It feels better. It is better. We were designed to do that. And throughout the Bible, what it says is the most loving or giving act that you can do for someone else is to bring them closer to their true Savior and their true husband, who's Christ. Right? So that's the most giving act that I could do to my wife is to constantly bring her in prayer, bring her in uh, worship and praise of God and always showing her that like everything that's good about me should just point you to the greater intimacy and joy and pleasure that's in Christ. Right? That's what yeah. it means in Ephesians 5 when it says that the husbands wash their wife in the water of the word. Right? There's this immersion that the husband's supposed to be doing for his bride of bringing her closer presenting her without spot or blemish to, to Christ. So it's like if I'm having sex with my wife 
and let's say we have great sex, you know, and it feels amazing and it's incredible. And afterwards, I'm like, great. And I never bring that back to Christ. I never bring that back to Christ. Essentially, who's glorified in that instance is myself, right? My wife would be like, man, my husband's amazing. Like, he's the best. Like, he makes me feel so good, right? And that's great. But the most loving thing I could do for her is to point it back to God, right? Give all the pleasure and turn it into praise, right? Which is greater pleasure, right? It's pleasurable to feel pleasure, but it's even more pleasurable to express pleasure through praise. Yeah, and then teaching a, uh, you know, you teach a philosophy too in sex. You know, so, you know, when you have sex, then there's the teaching part of it. What am I communicating in the sex? See, in Song of Solomon chapter 7, when it's going through verses 1 through 6, how beautiful are the sandals of your feet, it's talking about going from the feet all the way up to the head. Mm. You know, this this intimate, you know, what am I teaching? What is the philosophy of my sex? You know, when you're a teenager, man, the philosophy of your sex is just kind of, you know, you know, it's all about you. And, and what are you communicating in, in those high school relationships? I just want this, you know, this is about me. Um, I don't really care for you. This is about (laughs) me. You know, that's, that's kind of the communication that's going on. That's the philosophy. It's, if we had to put a word on it, we would say it's a narcissistic philosophical worldview, you know, um, which obviously doesn't, we don't, we never look at high school relationships and think they're ones of longevity. Why? Because we assume they're narcissistic, you know, and we know that narcissism isn't conducive to long-term relationships. Hmm. Why? Because there's hurt involved in it. Why? Because there's incredible selfishness. That's what narcissism is. Right. So, so, you know, we see that. It's just like, again, even if you said, hey, Bo, I'm not even a Christian and I want to go to my, this sex club, a swinger sex club. Well, what if someone went into the swinger sex club and said, you know what, I'm not, I'm not so much into swinging. I'm into, um, like, I want to have multiple, multiple partners and not just, not just a monogamous with swingers, you know, just swapping wives or swapping husbands kind of thing. I want more. And they go, well, no, that's not what we have. And I would say, well, what do you mean? What do you mean? Are you saying I'm wrong? Do you see where their problem is? It's like they, even though they might say, hey, well, we're open-minded. Are they really open-minded? No, they're just open-minded to what they want to teach. Hmm. You know, that's all they're open-minded to. They're not, you know, they would be closed-minded if someone came in and said, hey, no, that's, that's wrong. So, so what we're saying, though, is that God, God is the right, that, that there is an absolute objective right and an objective wrong when it comes to our sexuality. Where, again, we're not the only ones who say there's a right and wrong to sexuality, just as if I made the point about the, the swingers club. There's a, a, a right and wrong to them as well. And when whatever club you go to, there's a right and wrong to them as well. Hmm. And 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 so, what we have to ask is: Is there a truth? Is there such a thing as truth? Hmm. And if the answer is yes, there is truth. Because if you say no, there's no such thing as truth, then that's a self-defeating statement, and you're wrong anyway. 
So if there is such a thing as truth, we have to ask what is the right truth when it comes to what kind of sex is the greatest sex? Right. Is that an answerable question? Yeah. And and is it going to be a subjective idea, meaning is it just our thoughts on what makes great sex? Or is it is there is there a reason to believe in a being that is intimate himself who has communicated that intimacy with us and has shared it with us? Hmm. And 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 that's what we are claiming as Christians that the, that yes there is reason to believe that. Right. You know, and and that in doing so um, we avoid that narcissism um, or we can get out of that narcissism that is, uh, we know all of us as human beings is innately not conducive. Hmm. So when someone says, hey, let's look at the Bonobo monkey and say, and use that as a forerunner for how we should behave as humans, um, I don't know if that's a great, <laughs> that's a great one because there's quite a lot of narcissism and Bonoboism. Right. You know, in the way the monkeys act. Right. Plus, someone pointed out to me the other day that they eat their own poop, too. <laughs> Probably not the best things to look up to. But, <laughs> no. Um, yeah, there's a, there's a great talk by this woman named Esther Perel uh, called The Secret of Desire, and it's fascinating. It's like 20 minutes long. It's on YouTube. But um, in it, she's a marital counselor. She's not a Christian. But in it, she talks about the issue with long-term relationships. And one of the big issues that she comes up with is that in all of her time counseling, what she's found out is that as relationships go on, passion fades, no matter what, right? So passion's going to fade. The, the initial spark, the initial flame that you have when you first start dating someone or you first get married to someone progressively gets less and less intense as time goes, right? So it might take, so for some people in our culture, it might take a year for that passion to fully die out, or it might take 50 years, but it's, it's progressively going down. <laughs> These are the reasons that she gives, the, the two reasons that she gives that she boils it down to of why desire fades. It's in order for desire to grow, there needs to be novelty and there needs to be freedom and independence. And she said when you have a committed relationship, it tends to stifle the two because you've destroyed novelty, newness, because you both are with one another for the rest of your lives, but you've also destroyed freedom and independence because now you're stuck with one another for the rest of your lives. And as she goes through it, she doesn't fully say it, but she essentially says exactly what Bo does. The reason why that stifled uh, pleasure and passion starts to die is because of narcissism, meaning it's not this, the marriage that's the problem. It's the attitude of the person in the marriage, right? So the person in the marriage feels stifled and they feel like nothing new is happening because they're thinking about them, right? But what she says at the end, without saying it, she essentially says the key or the solution to flip that is if you make the relationship about the other person then you have all the novelty and all the independence and freedom that you could ever want because now instead of thinking what could they do for me that's different you're always thinking and contemplating what could i do for them that's different and new right so that's what we believe as christians is that as god puts a spirit in us and helps us grow in the love that we have for one another we will instead of thinking about what's in it for me will instead think about what is beneficial for my spouse. And so when I have those conversations with my wife, it is a, it is a mutuality there where I'm thinking like I'm, when I'm communicating to her what's beneficial for me, I'm doing it because I want her to grow in her service and love 
And then when she's communicating those same things back, it's because she wants me to grow in my service and love so that we could grow together towards our love for God, which is our supreme joy and pleasure. Yeah, and that's so cool because if you read 1 Corinthians 7, it, it, it just nails that. It says, you know, um, your body's not your own, it's your spouse's, and your spouse's is not hers, it's yours. And you're to come together and mutually uh, be affect, affectionate towards one another. And that's how things become great in sex. It's not through narcissism, but it's by both people looking to the other and saying, hey, how can I bless you? How can I go from head to toe and, and be that involved in you? You know, not just not just one part of your body, but in all the parts of your body to experience everything about you, to give you the ultimate pleasure. You know, and that that makes it great biblically. So thanks a lot for checking us out on Running Light. And uh, I'm Bo Peter. You can always email us at peter at runninglight.org or bo at runninglight.org. And you can check out always our website at betterpleasure.net. That's betterpleasure.net to just check out what we do at Running Light Ministries. So, hey, Francisco, thanks for joining us, man. And uh, I hope to see you in May. (laughs) We'll talk to you later.